Welcome in, everybody. It is Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m., and we are here together again for the Deep Dive Kings of Compromise Part 25. And tonight, we are talking about spiritual warfare. It is a favorite subject among many Christians. Many a preacher love to preach about spiritual warfare. A lot of sermons about it. And today, we get to take a look at what it looks like in the material so we can understand how it operates in the spiritual. This is a key aspect to Bible study. The Old Testament is a physical reality to many spiritual realities of the New Testament. The Old Testament stories, which are real and historical, are allusions to the spiritual war going on around us that are more clearly exhibited in the New Testament, okay? And 2 Kings 6 and 7 is going to show us how Elisha fought a spiritual warfare when everyone around him was anxious about the physical realities. And my quest for you today is that you will engage in the spiritual realm so the spiritual realm doesn't overwhelm you. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, this video is a little different than the usual deep dive. There are cuts, there's edits. We post-produced this content. And we're trying something new, and I want you to let me know in the chat below or to the right if you like it better this way. I'm trying to condense the material, trying to make it cleaner, trying to get rid of all the space, and make sure that we can get this content to you as purely as possible. So just watch, enjoy, and I hope you appreciate it. No, I'm not live. This is pre-recorded, but it is premiering live here on the channel. So with that in mind, like and subscribe to the channel, to the video, and click that notification bell so you can get notified every time we go live on your smartphone. Let's dig into the Kings of Compromise. One of the things I think we need to remember on a regular basis is that we serve the unseen God. He is real. He is alive, but he is unseen. And he is unseen and working behind what is seen. Now, what we're going to see also in this chapter is that there are small things that God is involved in, and there are big things that God is involved in. He is involved in both the big and the small. Some of you are going through big things right now, and you need to remember that God is involved in that. And some of you are involved in the smaller issues of life, and you think, surely God's not caring about that. Yeah, he does. He cares about your big issues. He cares about your small issues and everything in between. So with that in mind, let's dig into the text. Uh, through the text, we begin with... Verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Okay, right off the bat. What are we seeing here in the text? We are seeing that the prophets of Israel, the prophets of northern Israel, are actually doing quite well. They are expanding their school. Remember that before Elijah goes to heaven with Elijah, he goes to the three schools. He goes to Bethel, Jordan. He goes to Jericho. And now he is at the uh, Jordan school here. And the place is too small. The people, the, the, the prophets in the school need to expand. This is kind of interesting because let's follow the narrative arc of first and second Kings. Just go back to first Kings chapter 18 or 17 for that matter. And you will see that uh, Obadiah, a prophet, is hiding uh, groups of 50 of the Lord's prophets in caves from Jezebel, who's trying to kill all of them. And Ahab is hunting, literally hunting for Elijah. So the schools of the prophets have really made some great strides 
over the course of the last several years of Israel's history. It is proof positive that it doesn't matter what the politics are doing. The church can keep growing even under the auspices of ridiculously bad political figures. And some of, you, some of you need to hear that right now. You need to know that God is still growing his church in spite of what you see in Washington, D.C. So they go from caves to a campus, in the words of Howard Hendricks, a great uh, professor from Dallas Theological Seminary. They go from caves to a campus. Never underestimate the impact of the church and the body of Christ in the midst of dark and distressing times. We might be down at times, might be hiding sometimes, but we are never out. The church in Rome in the first century went underground. They went into the catacombs. They studied scripture there. They handed out scriptures there. They prayed there and God elevated them and brought them out eventually. And they basically took over the Roman empire. Never forget that. You might be down, you're not out. So they set out to build, right? Notice the prophets are working to build their own school, by the way. The prophets are working men. And I think that there is a great truth to be had here. Many of God's best were working men. Um, Caleb was a working man. Caleb and Joshua were both slaves. They knew how to work. Moses was a working man, a shepherd. You know, Abraham, a working man. Jesus, a carpenter. Peter, a fisherman. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a tent maker. Work is a good thing. And God uses men who work. And I have had jobs outside of the church. And I thank God for the learning that I had under uh, secular bosses. I thank God for the jobs that I had that were not Christian, were not ministry oriented because they taught me the value of work because work is a good thing. Work is not evil. I had a kid who worked with us in the ministry at my church for a couple of years. He did not last. He did not want to work. <laughs> if we asked him to put up a shelf, he hemmed and hawed and moaned and took a week to get it done. He did not last with the church very long. I think that there is a great value to working. So their prophets here in second Kings six are working and they're building their own school out. They're actually expanding the school's territory. So they ask Elijah to come with them. And 10 miracles have been recorded so far in Elijah. This is number 11. And what's going to happen? Well, look what it says in verse five. It says this, but as one was felling a log, his ax head fell into the water and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now, this is the 11th miracle of Elijah. Remember, Elijah has raised the dead. He has multiplied food. He has made poison stew uh, healthy again. So you have this very minimal, it looks like, story. An axe head falls into the river, into the Jordan River. And nobody goes swimming. Nobody goes diving for it. It just, the man of God loses it. He realizes I'm up a creek here because I got to do some work to build the campus. And this accent was borrowed. And so he goes to Elisha and Elisha goes to where it fell. Notice that Elisha asks the man, where did it fall? He goes, takes him back to the place where it fell. Very important point there, because this is a picture of sometimes we get so involved in our work for the Lord. We don't even realize that we have lost our edge. Right? Think about an axe head. It's got an edge. It's got a sharpness. Sometimes you lose your sharp, your sharpness in the kingdom, in your work. You need to go back to where you lost it. That's the principle here. And he takes the, Eli he takes the prophet Elijah with him. Elisha uh, takes another stick, throws it into the water, and the axe head meets the stick. Powerful illustration about getting a handle on your life and finding your edge. 
or getting your edge back. And if you get a handle, you got to get a new handle. Sometimes the old things that you used to hold onto in ministry or in life don't work anymore. Amen. Sometimes what you used to do no longer works for what you are going to do. And you have to learn how to let go of the handles that you had and get a new one and axe head meet new handle. This is how you get your edge back. But the point that I want to make here in our text is that God is involved in the small things. I wonder who here is listening to me or watching, and you need to be reminded that God cares about the small things in your life. I love Philip Graham Riken's um, commentary on this verse. He says this, the story of the buoyant axe head may seem trivial, that is, until the table saw you borrowed ends up at the bottom of the river or the pickup truck you drove crashes into the ravine, then it can seem like a matter of life and death. Causing an accident, losing someone else's stuff, falling into debt, heading for financial ruin, these are these are the kinds of personal crises that make people sick at heart, but God knows exactly what his servants need, even when it is nothing more than a piece of iron. He loves to save us when we call for help. Ooh, I love that. I love the fact that God cares about small stuff in our lives. You might be in a place where you think, I don't want to bother God with this issue in my life. Bother him. He's not bothered, first of all. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. He's not going to be put off by your requests. And case in point, a simple piece of iron is saved because Elisha is called on and works his 11th miracle on behalf of a working prophet. Interesting small little story. Now things go from small to large in the text. Let's go to verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved him there more than once or twice. Now this is interesting. Um, Syria is warring against Israel. They are going in and raiding. They, this is how you proved your mettle as a king in the ancient world. You would raid your neighbors and just show your people who was in charge. And so the king of Assyria is raiding the people of Israel again and again and again. And he's setting up camps in random places to kind of raid and the king of Israel could have been very um, uh, vulnerable in this situation, but he is not because why? Elisha, the prophet. The prophet is working on his behalf. He sees where the king of Syria is going to be and he warns the king of Israel on a regular basis about where he's going so that he doesn't go there and get himself killed. And by the way, quick recap, this is Jehoram. This is Ahab's second son who took over after Ahab's first son, Ahaziah. And Jehoram is not a good man. He is not a godly king. He is a, an idol worshiper. And yet Elisha works the power of God for his good. God is in the business regularly in the Old Testament of saving bad people. Anybody ever told you that the Old Testament God is mean and bad and nasty and vengeful and judgmental and the New Testament God is full of love and compassion and kindness? Uh, they are wrong. It's the same God, same character. And you see it here in texts like this when Jehoram, a wicked king, is helped by the God of Israel. Let's go on in verse 11. It says this, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So he thinks he's got a traitor in his ranks. <laughs> Let me know which one of my guys is informing the king of Israel where I'm going. And one one of his servants said, no one, there's no one, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send him and seize him. But it was told, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, what you need to know about Dothan is a very small city. It is also not Elisha's hometown because he lived in Abel Mahola. We find that out in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. 
But he's in Dothan. It's a very small city, and it's got uh, open plains, and then there's mountains around it. This is the setting. You have to see the setting because it's important about, what, about what's going to happen here. So the spiritual surveillance is told, uh, is, is told to the king of Syria. Syria. The Syrian king is mad. He comes in, and he surrounds the prophet. He goes from chasing the king of Israel to chasing the prophet of Israel. And you have to understand that God gave Elijah these insights and this knowledge because God knows. God knows everything. He's omniscient. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing shocks God. He knows exactly where everyone is at every moment. So verse 15, it says this, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this is amazing, right? The king of Syria moves on from fighting the king of Israel. He goes after the prophet of Israel. Elisha's servant comes out in the morning, sees all of the Syrian army around him, and he panics. This is what we do. We panic. What am I going to do? Got this army surrounding me. It looks like the odds are stacked against me. He turns to Elisha as well. Just like the guy with the lost axe head turns to Elisha, so Elisha's servant turns to Elisha. And these are massively different moments. An accident is a very small piece of iron. An army besieging you is a big stinking deal. Anyway, what does Elisha do? He prays. He prays that the servant would see the world the way God truly sees it. You see, you have to understand that God has many more in the spiritual realm for us than those that are against us. Remember the book of Revelation tells us that Satan only took one third of the angels from heaven. That means that there are still two thirds of the angels on God's side and therefore on our side ministering to us. That means that the angelic army for us outnumbers the fallen angelic army against us by a factor of two to one. There are more for us than are against us. And he, as first John says, who is in us is greater than he who is against us. So, we, we have to believe this. We have to know this if we're going to have confidence in the spiritual realm to fight the battles and fight the spiritual war that is engaged all around us. But this passage shows us something. It shows us that no matter what our enemies are on earth, there are more for us in the unseen realm. And what a profound hope we have. Now, it also teaches us this valuable lesson. Prayer enables the believer to see challenges as God sees them. Prayer what does Elisha do? Oh, Lord, open his eyes. Oh, Lord, open my eyes, you should be saying, to the spiritual battle around me, to know that the angels are for me. By the way, this is the passage where I think it was Michael W. Smith or Bethel Worship. I don't know who wrote it, but there's a song called Surrounded, and it says this. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is the passage where that comes from. You have to see what God sees in the spiritual realm, or you will be discouraged and you will want to give up. There is a battle going on at all times around you. To be ignorant of the battle is to be defeated. To ignore the battle is to be defeated. To not understand that the odds are for you in the battle is to be defeated. You want to win. So you got to know many more are for you, that there is a spiritual power uh, available to you, and that the enemy cannot defeat you because God is with you. This is like the image that I just had. I'll put it up here on the screen. So, you know, that's you down here in the bottom, right? This is us. And then these are the armies all around us coming against us. But notice that we've got angels. And uh, these are, you know, the Bible says they are referred to as flaming swords in the Bible. Angels are. 
and they are surrounding our enemies. Our enemies are surrounded by God. We are always with him. We are never defeated because God is with us. Amen, amen, and amen. Okay, verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So he's actually leading them right into the capital city of Israel right here. <laughs> through his prophetic powers, he can make people see and he can make people blind through his prophetic powers. This is a powerful anointing upon Elisha's life, even more powerful than Elijah's in many respects. And you have to understand that that is how God has always worked. The successors have always outdone the predecessors in the Bible. Just check up on that because you do see that on a regular basis. Jesus even said to the disciples, uh, greater things than you that I have done, you will do because I'm going to the Father. Uh, Joshua led the people further than Moses. You have um, uh, Solomon outdoing David in bringing the nation of Israel to prominence, power, wealth, prosperity. You have Jesus outdoing the works of Elijah, um, uh, sorry, John the Baptist. And so you have the pattern of God in scripture is that those you disciple should outdo you. There is a problem with sometimes in the church, older saints getting jealous of younger saints, having more opportunity, more power, and more capacity. Why? That is a good thing. The fruitfulness of the generation that comes after you is the result of the faithfulness of your generation. And you have to realize that. By the way, the fruitfulness of your generation is because of the faithfulness of the previous generation. My ministry is far more expansive than those who came before me in the faith. And I thank God for that. But it was because of them. And hopefully those who I pass this on to outdo me in the spiritual realm. We should always, as Christians, always be praying for the success, the greater success of the generations who come after us. That's the kingdom mindset. It's not about you. It's not about your generation. It's not about what you did. You did great things, but you did those so that people beyond you could do greater things. Have that spirit in you because the rest is just selfishness. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And I love this because Jehoram is eager to enact vengeance. This is the guy that's been raiding my nation. This is the guy that's been coming after me. This is the guy who wants to kill me. I have him. Now he's been handed to me by the power of the Lord. Let me kill him. And what does Elisha say? Very next verse. He answered him. He said, you shall not strike them down. This is verse 22. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So Elisha says, no, you're not going to kill them. You're going to not only spare them, you're going to feed them. And this is a beautiful passage. It's actually what scripture teaches us both in Proverbs and in Romans, Old and New Testament. It says this in Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. We do not take vengeance on our enemies. When they are handed over to us, we do not have to avenge. That is God's business. We love our enemies. Why? You say, I don't like that. That's a passage of scripture I wish that wasn't in the Bible. I hear you on that. But here's why we do it. Because God loved us when we were his enemies. Romans 5.10 tells us we were enemies with God. Yet God died for us in the person of Jesus Christ's son. 
If he loved us when we were his enemies, we must love those who are our enemies. It makes us more like him. It makes us more like him. That's why we love and for love and pray for our enemies. That's the meaning of this passage. So verse 24, afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Hold up. Didn't, <laughs> didn't the king of Israel just spare the king of Syria? Yep. Didn't he feed him? Yes. And yet now, on the very next verse, uh, he comes and attacks Israel again? Yes. Just because we do what God wants and just because we're kind to our neighbors or enemies does not mean we're going to get paid back with good. They sometimes will just not change. And you have to learn how to bear under that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and it's okay because, again, the spiritual war around us is waging and we have to remember that more are for us than against us. Verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dung, dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Yes, you heard that right. Dove's dung was selling for food. Now, I don't know if there was any nutritional value to this dove's dung, but evidently it had come to that point in the nation of Israel. The famine was so bad, they were eating donkey's heads and dove's dung, and they were paying exorbitant prices for it. So this is the enemy coming in and now making things worse. Victories will happen, but sometimes after the victory comes worse events. And here again, the Lord allows this. The Lord allows Israel's enemies to triumph. Why? Why? Because the Lord was judging his people. The Lord holds his people accountable to his, to his law. And they were breaking the law. They were idolatrous. Remember, this is Ahab's son, Jehoram, on the throne. He is an idolatrous, godless king. They're in the northern kingdom. Remember this. In the, in the northern kingdom, there was not a single righteous king. Not one single one. And everyone, sometimes they got not so bad, but most of them were just really, really bad. And the one after the previous was always worse than the one previous to him. So verse 26 says, now, now as the king of Israel was passing by in the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, I have no resources. I'm in the same boat as you are. And I think this is a very powerful principle. It's why good Christians never trust the government. <laughs> the government cannot help. The government cannot save. God saves. And there comes a limitation to the powers of the government and the ruling power class. So verse 28 says this, the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Yikes. The Old Testament is R-rated. You have to know that. It is an R-rated film, okay? They're eating their children. They're eating their babies. That's how bad this is. And you say, why would God allow this? God was allowing it because they were turning from God. This is a picture of hell. When you turn from God, this is what you get. You get a godless society that disregards the human life from the womb. A godless society disregards human life from the womb. Got it? And all of these events and judgments were prophesied both in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. Leviticus says as much in Leviticus 26. 27. If in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Why? Because you turned your back on me, says God. This is how God prophesied through the law that if they broke the law, the covenantal promise was that he would be judged according to the law. So verse 30, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do to me and more so also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
remains on his shoulders today. The king doesn't care that his people are starving. The king wants to kill Elisha. Isn't this amazing? It is one of the telltale signs of a nation gone wrong. They blame the people of God for the high cost of their own idolatry and sin. And this is what you see being practiced right now in America. Who are the, who are the bad people in America? Christians. Oh, those biblical Christians. Oh, those fundamentalists. Oh, those evil, you know, right-wing fundamentalists. They are the problem with society. And this is what you're having happen now in America? Well, it's happened before. Again, the theme of this, this season on the deep dive is what we are seeing today, we have seen before. And it's amazing how these themes run parallel to our times even now. The king wants to kill Elisha because his idolatry is costing his people their lives. Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. It is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So you see the impatience and you see the frustration with God as a result of their own immorality leading to devastation. This is the blindness being spiritually lost brings because you cannot comprehend the fact that your own sins are costing you these problems. And this is where the lost are. This is where the unbelievers are on a regular basis. Yes, the Lord sends trouble to wake us up from our waywardness. But even our waywardness can blind us to the fact that we are wayward. I always say this to people like you understand that lost people don't know they're lost. Unbelievers do not think they're unbelievers. They just think they're right. They think they're right because their wrongness makes them think they're right. Anyway, turning the page to chapter seven, here's that. Here's what it says. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a shea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two sheas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Again, the Lord intervenes on behalf of this nation, this idolatrous, godless nation. If you don't think that there is hope for America, okay, read the book of first and second Kings <laughs> because we are not as bad as them. And yet God had mercy on them. Remember when uh, Abraham argues with, the, with, with God about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, can you find 50 and, and spare the city for 50? God says, yes, for 50, I will spare the city. It doesn't matter. It gets all the way down to 10. And God says, I will spare the city for 10. He couldn't find 10 righteous persons in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So yes, God is still being merciful to America. Why? Because there's far more than 10 Christians. There's far more than 10 biblically minded, good, godly people. And God is being merciful. And we should be appreciate that every day of our lives. Verse three. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. This is a phenomenal moment. And I love this. You got four lepers and lepers were outcasts of society. They were helpless. They were unwhole. They were unwell. They had to be separated and cordoned off from regular society. And here they are sitting at the gate because uh, things are that bad. They're in the governmental center. The gates were the governmental centers of the cities in those days. And so there they are sitting at the gate and they say, wait a second, uh, we got a couple of choices. If we sit here, we're going to die because the famine is bad. If we go into the city, uh, we're going to die because... The famine is there. And if we go into the enemy's camp, we got an option. We got at least hope they might spare our lives and feed us and live or they'll kill us. So we got four options, four possibilities. One of them leads to life. The other three lead to death. And when you have four options and only one will work, take it. 
That is what the Bible is telling us here. When there is a potential for healing and you don't know it might even work, please do it anyway. Because if it heals you, you're healed. This is a phenomenally simple formula that so many people ignore. (laughs) Do what has the potential to bring you peace and hope. Act. In other words, act. And we're going to conclude that idea in a a few moments. Anyway, they go into the city. There's no one there. It says, why? Verse 6, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of the chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So these guys are just living high off the hog. They have been spared. God has driven the army out of the city. So now the city is left plundered. They can plunder the city. They can take all the gold, the silver, the food. I mean, they have made bank immediately on this risky chance that they took of going into the enemy's camp. But it was God that did it. God made it possible for them to plunder the enemy's camp. And they kind of have a come to Jesus moment in verse 9. These four lepers. And look what it says in verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. I love this moment. I love this moment. Do you know why I love this moment? Because when the lepers realized how saved they were, they couldn't help but share it. When you know that God has saved you and miraculously delivered you, you cannot keep it to yourself. It is antithetical to the heart of God. This is a day of good news and we need to share it. Sharing your faith is not about arguing creation versus evolution or social issues. Sharing your faith is telling people what God has done for you, how he has supplied your needs. Well, they don't listen when I say that. It doesn't matter. You have still done your job. You witness, you share what God has done. Perhaps somebody will be open to hearing you and responding to you. Okay? Verse 12. And the king rose that night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get them into the city. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that the horses who are left Here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have previously or already perished. Let us send and see. So the king, again, is hard-hearted like many of your non-believing friends are, and he can't even fathom that God would do this. He's considering it a ruse by the enemy to lure him into the city so that he can overtake him. This is the hardness of men's hearts. This is the hardness that idolatry creates. Remember, he has blamed Elisha for the famine. It's not Elisha's fault. It's the king of Syria's fault. And it is their idolatry's fault, really. And now God has blessed him and saved him miraculously. And he still doesn't believe that God did it. He has to believe that the enemy is out to get him. This is the hardness of heart that occurs as a result of idolatry. This is why you've got to expel the idols from your life because it will taint your heart toward God. It will always cause you to think, that God is out to get you, the enemies are surrounding you, and you are defeated. And that is losing the spiritual warfare. You need to turn your heart toward God on a regular basis. Turn from idols, turn from sin, so that God can empower you to win. Verse 14. So they took the two horsemen, and the king sent after them 
the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. Behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. So the report is confirmed. Verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a shea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two shea's of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord that remember Elisha gave. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. The famine is over. Elisha is right. And the man who questioned God's word through Elisha is trampled to death. Everything comes to pass according to the word of the prophet. And this is teaching us again in the book of Kings. It is servants. It is lepers. It is members of the school of the prophets. It is young, godly people who thrive. And it is prophets who lead the day. Not the kings in powerful places, but the prophets on their knees who lead the day. Verse 18, the summation of these two chapters. For when the man of God had said to the king, two she is of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a she of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Just another kind of conclusion to the fact that the one man that you should listen to when you doubt him, it costs you. When you don't listen to the man of God, it costs you your life. And this is what this passage is showing us. This is an amazing picture. And I want to regroup us, okay, back to what I originally said in the beginning of this talk. The Old Testament physical realities are are pictures of our spiritual realities in Christ in the New Testament. Yes, God can still do physical things like this, absolutely. But there is a spiritual war that is going on all around us. And we, we undercut ourselves when we do not understand it, when we do not engage it, when we do not believe that we are in Christ strong enough to handle it. So with all that in mind, let's tap into truth. Couple of things to conclude this talk. Number one, God cares for his servants. Who are the people that God helps in this passage? He helps the prophet who is building the house of God. He helps the prophet who's directing the affairs of the king. He helps the lepers, the four lepers at the gate. He helps the starving citizens in the famine. This is what God does. He helps the destitute. He helps those who serve him. What does he do? How does he help them? He helps them in the small things. He helps them in the big things. He makes a borrowed axe head float. He guides the king through war to escape his enemies. He opens the eyes of the prophet's servant. He brings the lepers plenty of food and he ends a famine. God is over the big and small matters of our lives. But let's talk about this. This is the main uh, theme of this text. The spiritual realm is a realm of war. And I fear that many Christians have forgotten that. Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Listen to that definition again about God, because we want to say God is peace and God is kindness and God is joyful and God is meek and God is, you know, humble and all those kind of things. Well, he's also a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. Jesus came to fight. He is the strong man, right? He is the stronger man who bound the strong man, Satan, through his blood at the cross and plundered his camp so that we can live in victory. I fear that in the modern church and especially in the modern age of American church, there is this constant quest for comfortable Christianity that leaves us spiritually defeated in more ways than we realize because we're at war, friend. We are at war. And scripture is replete with texts to that point. 
Ephesians chapter 6, 12. We do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of the present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. These are warfare verses. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Christian, you are at war. And to the extent that you disregard that, you are a sitting duck for spiritual depression, anxiety, for mental illness, for the problems of our current age. And you are not to do that. You are not to fall into the despondency of your generation. You are to stand up in faith and believe that the fight is able to be won through the powerful weapons that God has given you in the Son. Okay? You can win because of Jesus. And I thought about this just a little bit longer. And I thought, how many of God's heroes were fighters? Let's take a look at this list. I have nine names on the list here up on the screen. God's heroes embrace the fight. Abraham fought a war with five kings. Jacob fought with God. Moses fought back the men attacking Jethro's daughters, then against the powers of Egypt. Joshua fought 31 kings and 10 nations. Caleb fought for the mountain at the top of the land. Judges, all of them had to fight, including Deborah, a woman who won a battle miraculously through the hand of the Lord. David fought Goliath and the Philistines. Peter was willing to fight the soldiers. Paul fought wild beasts in Ephesus and all over the known world. Paul fought to bring the gospel to the nations. All of God's heroes were fighters. And if you're not a fighter, you are waiting to be defeated because there, there is a spiritual fight going on around you, whether or not you embrace it. And we have to fight. We have to fight for our families. We have to fight for our marriages. We have to fight for our jobs. We have to fight for our prosperity. We have to fight for our churches to be impactful in our societies, in our communities. It is a spiritual war we are engaged in and let us not fall prey to apathetic spirituality. God is looking for a fighter because that's the people that he used in the New and Old Testaments. So, to that end, the spiritual realm is a realm of war. A couple of things that happen here. The prophetic student, he prays and he returns to where he lost his edge. Elisha interceded for those around him to see the heavenly realm. And the lepers stepped out in faith and risked it all and then shared what they learned about the power of God. These are the things that we must do. But I thought there's even more from a holistic biblical perspective of how we should engage in the spiritual warfare around us? And how do we engage the spiritual power available to us? couple things. Number one, prayer and intercession. When Elijah prays and says, oh Lord, open his eyes, he's praying for someone else. What is the difference between prayer and intercession? Prayer is prayer for you. Intercession is prayer for others. And Elijah models here a prayer of intercession for other people. God, open my wife's eyes. God, open my husband's eyes. God, open the eyes of my children. Have you prayed that prayer lately? You always want to pray that they change, but they won't change unless they see what needs to be changed. God opened my eyes. What does Paul pray for the Ephesians? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know the hope to which he has called you. We need our eyes opened by God. God has the power to open our eyes. Number two, fasting. Mark chapter nine, there's a demon that can't get cast out. And Jesus says this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. 
Fasting supercharges your prayer life. Denying yourself physical food and giving yourself spiritual empowerment is the only way sometimes to win the battle in the spiritual realm. Then there's the armor of God, which I'm sure you've heard many preachers preach about. We take up all the armor, but look at this last line in verse 17 of Ephesians 6. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You fight the battle through the Word and prayer and the armor, and you memorize Scripture. What does Jesus do in his battle with the devil in the wilderness? It is written. It is written. It is written. He's got Scripture memorized in his heart so that he can call on God to bear witness to the truth about him in the word, and he can win the battle that he is facing. And then there's one more, community. You know, Jude is a letter that is written to the church, and he starts the letter by saying, I was going to write to you about our common salvation, but I feel that it is necessary for me to write to you to contend for the faith. In other words, I was just going to send you a nice happy letter, but we need to fight. And now is not the time to sit back and settle in. We've got to fight and contend for the faith. And at the end of that chapter, one chapter, the book of Jude, verse 20 and 21, he says, You beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The key verbiage of this text is keep yourself in the love of God. How? By building yourself up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of the Lord, which is a picture of community. That's how you build yourselves up this is not an individual line. This is a corporate line. Build yourselves up together in the faith and you will feel the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. That is how we engage the spiritual realm because the spiritual realm is a realm of war. Therefore, do not let the material dominate your life. Do not let your emotions dominate your life. Do not let your decisions dominate your life. Do not let your mentality, your personality, your community, um, outside of Christ, of course, dominate your life. There is a battle going on. And these pictures of Elisha's life in 2 Kings 6 to 7 are a picture for us. They are ancient stories that point to present realities in the spiritual realm. God can give us eyes to see the battle around us, that many are for us, far more are for us than those that are against us. And we can win because of him. Amen. That is the talk. I'm glad you were here. And if you would do me so much of a favor as to support this channel, I would be thankful. Cash app, Tim Hatch Live, timhatchlive.com slash support. Check those places out to support this content. And I'm so glad that you were here. And the last thing that you can do to help this content is to share it, like it, and subscribe to the channel. All three of those things earn you extra credit in heaven. Not really, but I thought I'd throw that in there. Okay, we will be back uh, Tuesday night for the deep end again, 7.30 p.m. Tuesday night. I'm so glad that you were here. May God bless you and give you the strength to fight the good fight.